Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of My Buddy Green, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the My Buddy Green podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. So I wanted to tell you about our new sponsor of the podcast, Thrive Market. As many of you know, I recently became a dad. My wife, Colleen, and I have an eight-month-old baby girl, Ellie. It's not an exaggeration when I say that as a new parent, Thrive Market has been a complete lifesaver, which is why I'm so excited that we've teamed up with them to offer you $60 of free organic groceries, free shipping, and a 30-day trial membership. Yep, you heard that right, $60 of free groceries. It's a crazy good deal and it's going to save you a ton of money on food and products that'll make you feel absolutely amazing. And you can get all the details by going to thrivemarket.com slash mindbodygreen. Again, thrivemarket.com slash mindbodygreen. If you haven't heard of Thrive Market, it's an online marketplace that's made up of 100% healthy and organic products, the type of premium food, household cleaners, and bathroom products you'd see on MBG. Except on Thrive, everything is 25 to 50% off retail price. They do this by taking out the middleman. They work with brands directly and then pass those savings on to their customers. For Colleen and I, the convenience has been a huge part of it. Everything on Thrive Market is hyper-curated, so we're not scrolling through endless lists trying to find the one or two brands that meet our admittedly stringent standards. In Brooklyn, where we live, you often find yourself going to one store for collagen powder, another store for organic soap, another store for the right brand of BPA-free canned beans. It can take hours. And as someone running a major wellness media company, that's time I simply don't have. Thrive Market is one-stop shopping. Everything on the site is amazing, but beyond that, you can click to sort by vegan, gluten-free, non-GMO, organic, paleo, etc. You can even sort by more out there things. For instance, as you know, we're big into gut health on MBG. And as you might not know, Colleen is actually a big snacker. So on Thrive Market, you can go to the snack section and click to filter by snacks that contain probiotics. That was how we actually discovered the farmhouse culture Kraut Crisps, which contain billions of probiotics and are dangerously good. Check them out at thrivemarket.com slash mindbuddygreen. We've also been loving the lifestyle categories. Browsing the mom section was how Colleen stumbled across the organic gripe water that's been a game changer for Ellie's teething pain. I didn't even know what gripe water was, to be honest, and I definitely didn't know that there was an organic version. But thanks to Thrive Market, we now have a happy baby on our hands. And get this, it's normally $12.50 at your local health food store, but only $8.50 on Thrive Market. We recently held our annual Revitalize event in Arizona, where we debuted our new motto, You, We, All. At MBG, we think it's so important to reap the benefits of wellness on an individual level. Sure, we all want to feel amazing and live our best lives, but recently, we've really focused on expanding that message. We believe that wellness can change the world and that people who feel good can affect amazing change, which is why I'm so excited to hear about Thrive Market's one-for-one program. For everyone that signs up, they donate a membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher to help make healthy living affordable for everyone. Okay, so here's the deal. Right now, you can get up to $60 of free organic groceries, free shipping, and a 30-day trial membership by going to thrivemarket.com slash mindbodygreen. I'd start in the staple section where you'll find the kind of wellness essentials that we recommend on Mind Buddy Green daily, and then work your way out from there, depending on your own needs and preferences. 
Keep in mind, all of their prices are already up to 50% off, and now they're giving you an extra $60 free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash mybuddygreen. But be careful with the Kraut Crisps, though. Don't say I didn't warn you. Okay, now let's get into today's episode. Barry Sternlicht is the chairman and CEO of Starwood Capital Group, a private investment firm he formed in 1991 that focused on everything from global real estate, hotel management, and energy infrastructure. He's also the founder and CEO of one of my favorite new hotel brands, The One Hotel. For the past 26 years, Barry has structured investments with an asset value of over $84 billion. Barry's next big bet is on the planet with One Hotels, as he believes the future of the world is about wellness and sustainability. It is an honor to have one of the leading entrepreneurs in the world today, Barry Sternlicht, here with us. Barry, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I want to back into, there's a lot, lot to cover, and I want to start in the early days, and, and uh, your father is an influence on, on you, Holocaust survivor, entrepreneur. How, how did your father influence you as an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't think of my father as a Holocaust survivor. I, I think of him as a fighter. Uh, he was never in a camp. So he just fought against the Germans and the Rus- and then the Russians liberated him and he fought with the Czech partisans and saved his family. So I guess some of the things that come to mind is I always think of my worst day was probably better than his best day as a kid. And uh, I think he, you know, whatever he endured, I've, my life and my kids' lives is blessed and so charmed and and I'm so grateful for this country. He, he actually uh, taught me to be so grateful for this country where you could do anything you wanted. And um, so I kind of grabbed that ball, I guess. And, you know, he, uh, my mom wouldn't give me a penny for bubble gum in the supermarket <laughs> unless I behaved. So um, as I grew older, um, you know, I think I remember where I came from. Sure. I think uh, for me, and I also think it, it's an influence on my business career because I think that really successful people lose their humility, and that's when you really get hurt. You know, your, your intellectual humility, you think you've figured it out, and the world is always throwing you curveballs. It's always changing on you. And I think my dad, being an entrepreneur, he started a small business. He, he um, was very successful for a teeny little business, and he went with the governor of Connecticut to a China mission. He represented small business. It was a small business, didn't make a lot of money. It was probably five or $10 million in sales. Um, But he kind of got all hyped up in the stuff, you know, and all that, the Chamber of Commerce, and he was on running around with the heads of all the Fairfield County, Connecticut businesses like General Electric and Combustion Engineering. And one day they counted the inventory of his uh, flashlights. He, was, he made flashlights. He made uh, disposable <laughs> flashlights. And I spent my summers teaching tennis. And the evening, I would go to the factory and help save the light bulbs from the defective. Uh, <laughs> my job, I used to throw the light. The, the, <laughs> I'd throw the, um, the the flashlight against the wall, and I made it a game. Put a little target, <laughs> and it shatter, and I'd save the bulb because that was the most expensive part. Um, and, uh, but one day they found out they were missing all this inventory and this successful business, uh, failed. And, um, so I watched my dad, who was a very proud man, um, his business fail and, and he didn't really know what to do. I mean, it turned out he, he wound up taking a job. I think he was in his early sixties. 
fixing plants for the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, in, oh. the, in the middle of nowhere. He'd, he'd leave the house on Sunday night and go to somewhere in Tennessee, and then he'd drive to Waverly, Tennessee, and, they, and, and he did this for like, I don't know, 10 years. And that was after being, you know, it's hard with my mom, and and uh, but he did it because he had to do it. And I, I think so. He just taught me grit. You know, he taught me toughness and perseverance and get up after you're kicked. But he never lost faith in this country. He loved this country. He appreciated our freedoms and the chance to do anything you wanted. Um, he believed in education. Uh, he was tough. He was a tough guy. Growing up, he was he was uh, an enforcer. You know, he had a wild-ass temper. <laughs> so, um, you know, we'd drive as a family. We'd drive from Connecticut down to Florida. And uh, it would take, like, a, two days. My parents would alternate driving with the three boys. I'm in the middle of three boys. We'd sit in the back seat, and he'd have a huge fight with my mom. And uh, he'd get out of the car in the middle of South Carolina and start walking for hours. You know? Oh, wow. <laughs> and we're driving next to him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and we'd say, Dad, get it back in the car. And, and so he, had a, you know, he, he was tough, but it turned out okay. I mean, I think um, he taught us to be tough and disciplined. And, and again, I, I really think the toughness that I've exhibited in business and the, the picking myself up when we made a bad investment or something or had a tough turn in my own career, that's what I attribute to my dad. And then my mom who was born here in, in Brooklyn and... Uh, Where in Brooklyn? Yeah, uh, Flatbush. Okay, yeah. Right on the corner. Uh, her parents were Russian immigrants. And, uh, you know, I used to go with my grandfather to the train tracks here in Brooklyn and I'd put a penny on the train tracks and hope the, they'd squish the penny. You know, <laughs> that was my big activity. Um, but he was a podiatrist, my grandfather, and he... He took in the whole neighborhood. He never charged anything, so he worked for free. <laughs> and uh, when he retired, he, he had made no money, according to the government, so he didn't qualify for Social Security. <laughs> oh, wow. But they were such lovely people and, and uh, selfless. And, um, and my mom uh, was a, became a school teacher. She was a biology major, and so she was full-time when I was a tiny kid. And then as we grew up, she moved uh, to Connecticut when I was like five. She became a part-time teacher. And my mom is super creative. And uh, she's a painter and a gardener. So she three boys. She drafted me to do the gardening in the backyard. And uh, for some reason, I was interested. <laughs> and and I, I, so I learned all every flower, which amazes people. Um, and uh, she paints, and I painted. I started painting as a young kid. And uh, I started drawing. And, and do you went, still paint? Oh, yeah. Well... Actually, I'll be picking it up again because okay. I'm, I'm building a studio in my, my, my house, in my new house. Um, but, you know, I paint with my architecture and my design. That's sure. my creative outlet, and that's the part of real estate I really enjoy. It drives my partners bananas because I spend so much time on it, but it's, it's not work for me. It's, like, great, and then you're recognizing these great creative talents, and they do it in the physical form in architecture and design, and it's super cool, you know. And they're such gifted athletes, um, and it's, it, to, to me, it's like pure creativity. It's fantastic in the physical form, in architecture, interior design. Um, I'm not bad at it myself. I'm a really good editor, um, but I love to paint and sculpt, and I'll get back to doing that. So you go to Brown and then HBS, and then. Oh, you don't even know why I went to Brown. Oh, yeah, why right? did you go to Brown? So I went to public high school, like a school of 2,000. I went from a school of not 13 kids to a school of 500. Each class was 500, so 2,000 kids in Stanford, Connecticut, just middle class. Um, what high school did you go to? West Hill High School. Okay. 
and uh, it's still there. We started out with race riots. It was fantastic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was an okay student. I was a good student. Um, wasn't the best. I, 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 I hated math. I wasn't good at it. Um, so I went to Brown because there was no math requirements. I mean, no there's no any either, requirements right? and no grades. And, you know, satisfactory or no cookies. S or NC, no credit, but we call it no cookies. So, um, you know, Brown was the only school where I could do my own curriculum. I wouldn't have to do the things I didn't want to do. I didn't want to take a language course. Big mistake. And I didn't want to take a math course. I got by. <laughs> I didn't take a science course. So I was a liberal arts major. And um, I, I think Brown taught me how to think. I, I attribute my success and curiosity and the way I approach every problem with sort of an open mind to the way I was taught at Brown, probably. Um, but I graduated, and uh, my mom wanted me to be a lawyer because my brother was a doctor. I was a Jewish family, of course. I had to have all the professions covered. <laughs> and um, and I, I, so I, of course, took the LSATs, the, the law school boards, and um, I did pretty well. So I applied to, a, I think, a Penn and maybe even Yale, and, and I think I got in, but I decided I was not going to be a lawyer. I called my mom. I told her I was going to take a job, and she started to cry. <laughs> and I said, it'll be okay, Mom. And uh, so I, I got a job. Um, I'd worked my senior year uh, doing a research paper. for. I did a thesis on the, on the railroads, the deregulation of the railroads. And um, it was, the only thing that was interesting is whenever you do anything in depth, it's kind of interesting. And this was we took an act. Um, that deregulated the railroads and followed it from its creation through Congress to what they actually um, voted on and, and installed and whether the results were what they intended them to be. And to do the research of what happened to the railroads after the deregulation, I contacted an a investment a research analyst at, at what was then First Boston, and he offered me a job. So I also got a job at Booz Allen, the consulting firm. And for a kid who doesn't know anything about anything, consulting is what you need to do. So I got a job as a consultant. Um, and I really liked the markets. It was 1982, and it was the beginning of the bull market. I mean, it was the very um, epicenter of the bear market. The morning calls weren't like, buy Facebook, it's going from 100 to 300. It was buy G uh, sell GM, it's 10, and it's going to 3. <laughs> so... Um, and I kind of got it. My oh, I didn't tell you. My mom uh, dropped the uh, teaching part, became a stockbroker when the three boys left the house. Oh wow! And uh, of all the crazy things, she's a biology teacher. She didn't know anything about you know <laughs> anything about about equities or valuation. But she had a woman's instinct. So my dad used to say, "If you say, has your wife made you a small fortune in the market?" And he go, "Yeah, she started with a large one and made a small one out of it." <laughs> But she, uh, she did that for like 30 or 40 years. Oh, my God. But she's always very gregarious. I'm, I'm, I'm gregarious. She, I, when I was growing up, she would co I'd come home and she'd be sitting on the bed looking, you know, putting um, stamps on, on flyers to people, like call me, like stock recommendations. And she had no problem. Like, she's very social. My dad was not social. Um, so he just laughed at her and let her do her thing. But anyway... Um, so I took that job at Booz Allen, but I always liked the markets. And my roommate uh, was working for an arbitrage firm, a trading firm, um, my roommate for Brown. And, and he said, I didn't really like being at uh, Booz Allen. I didn't think a 22-year-old should tell adults how to run their business. And <laughs> the first thing they asked me to do was the, there were two aerospace firms that merged, Bendix and Martin Marietta. 
And I was supposed to tell them about the avionics. I'm like, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> and I'm reading books. I'm like, I'm sure they know much more about this even when they read a book than I do. So I kind of found it, thought it was sort of a joke. And um, I left. Uh, and I went to work at this arbitrage firm uh, called Miller, Tabak and Hirsch. And they're still, still yeah. around. And uh, so I, I learned to trade. And I, w- I was doing converts and stuff. And, I, and then my dad said to me, do you really want to look at a little green screen for the rest of your life? I'm like, oh, God, this was really lucrative, Dad. <laughs> but I applied to business school. I actually decided I'd go to business school and finish my education because I, as being a liberal arts major, I knew nothing about business. And I really thought I liked business. I liked the creativity of it. I only applied to two schools, Harvard and Stanford, and I got in to Harvard and got waitlisted at Stanford. And I decided to go, and I was sure I'd be there for like five days because <laughs> I would fail out. I really... I was terrified of, of numbers, you know, I was like, how do you go to business school and not be able to add? Um, but I, I, you know, I think, um, I, you learn, I mean, Harvard was fascinating because I think you, um, you learn what you're good at and you learn that everybody has a strength. Mm-hmm. And for me, I learned two things I didn't think were skills. I have a very good memory. Um, and I have a lot of common sense and, um, so I can, things I can, you can't teach. Yeah. Things you can't easily teach, I guess. And, and, uh, and I was very good with, I turned out with numbers, but not in, like, I can't do calculus or stuff like that, but I can look at pro formas or projections and say these are reasonable or unreasonable or see mistakes in them because the returns don't look right and remembering margins and things like that is, and I, for some reason I can remember every hotel, room count in Starwood Hotels, hotels, you know, I remember the first W was 713 keys and I don't know why I remember these <laughs> things. I can't remember my phone number, but I remember the number of hotel rooms in, in, in our hotels. So um, that turned out to be an interesting skill set. And, um, and I, I really enjoyed Harvard because for me, I think everybody there knew why they went there. Everybody was like an adult. You know, they were, they were, it was fun. I mean, it was super fun. I played a lot of sports and, and had a great time. But people went there to learn. There was no, no more of the stuff in high school or college, like the cool kids don't study. You know, that's, right. that's not part of business school. And in fact, the opposite it was sort of the intellectual stimulation, the conversation, the talking, because you have half your grade is chatting in class. And I've never had a problem chatting, so <laughs> I could I cover that half. But there were courses like uh, production operations management that uh, taught you like, you know, um, um, production like of, 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 what do they call them, assembly lines. And I, I nearly failed. I mean, I had no <laughs> idea to do that stuff. But then there was a course that I think it was one of my favorite courses called Analysis of Corporate Financial Reports and um, ACFR. And that was like reading um, annual reports and looking for the footnotes and reading the storybook that numbers lie. And I found that really cool. It was like Sherlock Holmes, you know, like, okay, well, how is management manipulating the numbers in these financial statements? And I really enjoyed that. It was kind of like, it was like, it was like a mystery novel. Sure, like, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. They change these assumptions in the back and they can change their earnings. And it's not obvious how the earnings went up and they can, you can read in the back and it tells you like what the rules are. Cause there's a lot of judgment calls in public financials and, uh, management sometimes get cute. Like they change, um, assumptions and they don't tell you so it was kind of like you call this forensic accounting today you know there's like people who find fraud in businesses or businesses that are overstating their earnings and they they and they obviously i just thought it was interesting i mean it was kind of like it was like storybook in financial form so i'm a weird person but i thought it was interesting so when did your love affair with hotels and real estate begin well so i wanted to i my goal i grew up middle class my neighbor had a pool and another neighbor had a tennis court. We had neither. 
So I wanted that. I had a goalpost. I, I wanted to be wealthy enough to have a tennis court and a pool. <laughs> and um, so I decided that I needed to get a job on Wall Street and um, after business school. And uh, I didn't want to be a trader. Um, I actually applied to a job down in Texas with the Bass Brothers and a fellow named Richard Rainwater. And uh, he, he, my resume said I was a trader. So I had been a trader. So he pushed me over to this fellow named Tommy Taylor. And uh, they were like the epicenter of cool places to work, but it was Fort Worth, Texas. Hmm. They flew me first class down there, and I had dinner with them at Lutas and all these fine restaurants, and they recruited me. But I decided I didn't want to do that. Um, I was warned about the character and the environment of the trading floor down there, and I made, a, I made that mistake earlier in my career. I didn't want to do it again. Um, so I applied to Wall Street, but nobody would hire me because I didn't have any experience on Wall Street. You know. Um, and I decided, well, real estate would be interesting. It's physical. It's, it's our art, sort of. And um, and I like my dad, of course. And I like people. I like travel. So I uh, found this firm in Chicago that was recruiting called JMB. Um, and uh, I went out to interview. And I'd always been an East Coast boy. And um, I liked them. The people were cool. The offices were fun. Um, one of the interview um, processes was we all had to go play basketball. Hmm. And I'm, I was a good basketball player growing up. I was all city point guard in ninth grade. Oh, so wow, I liked I that. that. That was my favorite thing to do. So, you know, I, I went, uh, so I took the job. I got a call from Neil Bloom, who's on the Forbes 400 even today. Back then he was on the Forbes 400. And he, he left a message on my answering machine at HBS at Harvard and said, you're our number one recruit. And I was really flattered. I had gotten an offer, it turned out, to work in the real estate group at Goldman Sachs. And there was a fellow named Ken Brody who became the head of the ex-import bank and went into Washington and was quite successful. He ran the real estate group. And it was a funny scene because uh, he said uh, he really wanted me to work there. And I was, turning, I was gonna turn him down. Um, to go to Chicago, which was crazy, but I decided you know, they had a lake, looked like an ocean, I was at home near, near water. <laughs> so I, he wanted to live, I had to live near water. Um, so anyway, he's like inviting me to go to uh, skiing with him, and then he invited me to like um, his home in Aspen, and, 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 and he goes, why won't you take this job? And I said, well, if I'm creative, I won't be able to, I have to like collate papers for a year, and I'll be stapling presentations. I said, I just, I want to be more creative. And he goes, oh, we're really creative. So he walks into his office, which is glass to the, to the cubicles, and, and uh, he sits down. And he says, come in here. He closes the door. I'm like, what's going to happen now? He turns behind his desk. There's a credenza. He opens the doors. He turns on this music, starts playing reggae music, and starts dancing. And this is a big boy. I mean, this guy's <laughs> like 6'3 and probably 250. And he says, look, we're really creative here. And I said, well, that's not exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> So I didn't take that job. I went to Chicago, worked for Neil Bloom, and, and I became his sort of wunderkind protege. Um, and for me, I mean, it was like I, I knew I, I wanted to exceed. I always was the kind of kid who tried to please a teacher by doing a little bit more than I was supposed to do. And um, so I looked for things the firm could do in my spare time, you know, that were not assignments. Like they'd say, go work on this. But I would read the paper and say, well, this is interesting. Why aren't we pursuing that? So. Um, I had a friend from, from business school that went to Walt Disney and I, I did, uh, between years of business school, I worked for a residential developer down in Florida called Arvida, or it was actually Arthur Vining Davis's, um, company. And they built all these great master plan communities like Boca West and, um, Longboat Key and, uh, um, what's the one, Sawgrass, where they play the TPC with the Island Green. So they were really well known. 
they got bought by Disney and that executive, um, we, we, went, we did a, a field project for them my second year of, of school where we decided that Disney, Disney was interested in building a four theme park and it was going to be uh, American manufacturing theme park. So we were going to bring down like Louisville Sluggers manufacturing facility and people could see baseball bats being made or, you know, some ski company. You can see the skis being made or we get Battle Creek, Michigan. We, we built a cereal factory. They were interested in using up real estate. It was just a project, but I got to know the Disney guys. And uh, one of the first things we did, there was a company, they owned Arvida and they wanted to sell it. Um, so I went to my boss and said, we should buy this. And one of my best friends went to work at Disney and we, we basically negotiated the purchase of Arvida for JMB together. And my boss is like, you can go negotiate this deal, but don't pay more than $400 million. So I was like, so of course I paid $400 million and, um, and we bought the business and the firm made a lot of money. Um, and that was like my, my first year. And then, and then I brought him another business. So there was a company called Amfac which uh, I noticed in the paper was being attacked by a hedge fund here in New York. And in fact, owned like 20% of all the private land in Hawaii. Hmm. And, and uh, we knew we could raise the money to buy it. And they owned a bunch of other stuff like Liberty House Department Store and a, a drug distribution company called MWC Inc. So uh, I organized to go try to be the white knight and save this company. And, and we did. We bought it. And uh, again, the firm made a lot of money. And I rose to be one of the top partners of this firm. This was the biggest real estate firm of its kind during that time. They had like $24 billion of real estate, which at wow. the time was a lot. It's huge. So, uh, so I, it was fun for me. I mean, it was a fun time for, in my so life. So when do you decide, I'm going to go out on my own? And the well, I got fired. Starboard. Oh, there you go. Well, that's an easy, it's okay. an easy way out. So how that uh, happened? What happened well, I went there in 86, and, and in 1990... We had an offsite, a partner's offsite, and, and I, I said to Neil, and I was sitting in a room, this giant room in the Ritz Carlton in Chicago, which he owns. Um, and was a, we're sitting in a big U, all the executives of the firm, and I raised my hand. I said, I don't understand that like interest rates are nine percent, and you're buying properties at six percent and five percent yields. And like, why don't you just buy the bonds, right? Why, why are you buying the real estate? <laughs> he and he said to me, I'll never forget it in my whole life. He said, real estate's different. And a year and a half later, real estate was not different. There was a giant crash in the property markets. And uh, JMB was, um, it was Juddelson, Malkin, and Bloom. And Juddelson left and, and formed a syndicator called Balcor. And he also bought the White Sox. And I guess they, they owned the Chicago Bulls. And uh, so JMB was just Malkin and Bloom. That's what I used to call it, or just more blood. And because we worked like our asses off. So uh, Neil Bloom had like 40 people working for him, the acquisition guys. And Judd Malkin the, was the, his operating partner, 10,000 people. He was managing all the shit we were buying, right? So when the, when the shit hit the fan and, and looked like the world was ending in 1991 with the first collapse of the of sure. Resolution Trust Corporation, the SNL crisis. Um, Judd basically locked up Neil, said, you're not buying anything. I'll, I'll save your ass, but throw away the keys and go away. So I will go and fix everything that you've bought. So, you know, the first thing you do in a recession is you cut costs, you yep. cut your overhead, and you can't cut secretaries. Enough. There aren't enough secretaries to cut to make a difference in a P&L of a company. So he went for the more, his favorite athletes. And, and, and I, I, I never forget this. I mean, I used to be, 
I go skiing with Neil Bloom. I go to his house. I was like a family member. I knew his yeah. wife, his daughter. Still know his wife and daughter and Neil and still friends. And I went to the every because then it was Walter, Walter Payton was playing football sure. and Michael Jordan was playing basketball. I mean, we had a great Good time. time. To be in Chicago. Yeah, and I would, I knew, you knew you were like Neil. If you were in, not a great athlete, Neil could not remember your name. Like there were other analysts and associates, but if you were me and I'd made him all this money, I got to go to all the games with him and everything. So. I was like a child, so they invited his child. They invited me. They asked me in the office one day, and they said, "Well, we have to let you go." I was like, "Excuse me," <laughs> and I knew it was ha- it was going to come. So I actually was looking for a job. I went back to Richard Rainwater and uh, said, "You should hire me." And he said, "I'll hire you now because you know how to do deals." And Richard Rainwater was a legendary deal maker out of Texas with the Bass Brothers. But he said, "I can't pay you anything. I won't pay you. I'll just give you pieces of deals." And my wife was pregnant with our first child. And I said, I don't, I don't think I have enough money to work for you for free. Right. So I got fired and uh, I was in shock. Uh, I had interest, equity interest and partnerships, but Neil wasn't going to pay me in cash. He paid me a little bit in cash and gave me a note for the other interest. So, um, and, and my boss and Neil said, um, you know, my, my direct boss was a fellow named Bruce Duncan. He said, I'll find you a job. So he started calling around Chicago and he's saying, you should hire this kid. He's amazing. I was 31 and, 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 you know, pay him 400 grand. And I'm like, pay me anything. I don't need 400 grand, pay me 50 grand. I just want a job. I got an offer actually. Somehow I wound up meeting this fellow, Marvin Davis, who was a legendary oil man from Los Angeles. And I went into his office and he was like, I am the king. He had, he had cash. He was one of these guys who had not overstretched himself. And he said, you know, he has a billion dollars of cash in the book. He lives top floor of the Fox Tower in, in Los Angeles in Century City. Um, you know, pictures of every president and every future president, and Margaret Thatcher on the wall, and amazing views of the LA uh, Valley. And uh, he says, well, you should come work for me. And I said, okay, I'm going to write up a contract. He goes, I don't do contracts. And he said, I said, I won't work with you without a contract because I had just been. Yeah, I don't I do thought, contracts. I thought I was kind of screwed by by my prior predecessor, and I wasn't going to do that again. So, uh, I said, I said, I'll put it on one page. He said, if you can put it on one page, I'll sign it. So I I, I did it one page. It was 11 by 14, and it was like micro print. <laughs> and I handed it to me, ripped it up, and I said, I'm not going to work for you. So my friend actually, who had worked at the Bass Brothers. Um, he, he got, graduated business school and went to work for the Vanderbilt family. And he heard I was available, and he called me and said, I'll back you. I said, you'll back me in what? He said, I'll back you in starting your own business. Well, I said, well, that's interesting. Okay, oh, I'll do that. And he said, I'll give you $10 million. And then Neil Bloom said, I'll give you $2 million, my old boss. And he said, he backed me. And then we, we the, the Vanderbilts were, it's the Burden family, Carter Burden. They were um, probably worth a couple hundred million dollars at the time, but you know, they, they were virtually broke. So $10 million was a huge commitment from them. And the Ziffs, which owned Ziff Davis Publishing, Dirk Ziff was about my age, maybe a couple years younger. And I met him, and he said he'd put in $10 million. So they backed me, and I took a salary of one hundred fifty grand. So all of a sudden you have twenty five, almost $25 $22 million. million. Actually, 21 because Neil found out I was doing real estate and said, I have enough of that. So he cut his commitment to one. So it was typical, Neil. So, and they owned a piece of my business, and uh, we, I, I recruited a friend from business school, Bobby Faith, and who's running a massive company today called Graystar. Um, and we set out to, and I, oh, and I hired this young man that had worked for me at JMB as my third employee. We took space in the AMA building in Chicago, and we, we, we sublet a corner of their building. Uh, this was an ad agency. I forgot which one it was. And... Um, 
and we sat in the corner and we had three employees and a secretary. And we, I used to tell people the, the big decision was we were going to get a curly paper fax or a plain paper fax machine. <laughs> we could we could we qualify for no credit. We had no assets and nobody would lend us money. But the young kid that worked for us, I had him go out and survey all the apartment markets. Because with $21 million, you're not buying a lot. Right. But you could buy an apartment building. And don't forget, this is the, the heat well, of the RTC crisis. People should keep in mind, too, that, that's a lot of money. But for what you do, it's not. For it's real not a lot not, of money, yeah. right? So... You know, and, and but they were uh, the government was liquidating all these savings and loans. So we would go to auctions around the country in fields with with pickup trucks and bands, and they'd be selling like a llama farm in an apartment building in Ocala, Florida. And we we look at the asset and we think it's worth six million dollars, and they'd sell it for two. So we would go to these auctions and bid. And then I met Sam Zell this way, the famous sure. investor. He was he had a he had a loan that the government had foreclosed uh, taken back. The bank had failed the rtc had collected the loan he guaranteed it so i went to the auction and uh bid against sam and he's like who is this guy so he sent a friend of mine to find me and uh, i met sam because i was bidding on his mortgage and i cost him a lot of money because <laughs> i kept bidding it up because i knew he was, he was good for the money right? right and his financial statements were in the were in the savings alone uh, files so we you know we built a large portfolio we bought, I went back to the zips and I said I gotta go raise more money um, we got a loan from Cargill from this uh, private company out based in uh, Minnesota and uh, and we started buying apartments and we bought them one and two at a time my strategy was to go where the institutions weren't so we went to Colorado Springs instead of Denver went to San Antonio instead of Dallas and we researched the markets, we picked the markets, and we started buying. And we used local partners to help us figure out which were the right corners and bad corners. Because I, like I said, intellectual humility, I realized the smart, when you're a business school guy, you get off a plane, you think you're smarter than everyone in the market. You, you don't see what's there before, and you don't mm -hmm. see what's going to be in the future. You don't really see the trends of a place. Like you can name in your local town, like I can tell you, the shopping center, which the corner store has never worked. There's been 13 tenants in that corner of that shopping center, but a business school guy goes and, and, and our pro forma, he leases it up, but it's never going to lease. Hmm. So you have to have that local flavor. Somebody who can tell you also, they were supposed to be early warning signals to tell us when to get out. Right. So we partnered with local guys in Denver, this guy named Al Blum. And I remember forget, I was traveling around with my buddy, Bob Faith, and we're, this is one of our first investments. And he, we're driving around. And he goes, he goes, look at that building. I said, he goes, I said, okay, this is a part building. I said, he's a T-111 siding. I said, What's that? Is that good? Or, I didn't say anything. I asked Bobby later. Is that good or bad? What is T one eleven siding? But you know, I think if you apply disciplines of investing and keep an open mind, um, we want to. So we assembled a portfolio of eight thousand units. Wow. And um, and then it was we spent the zips up there the commitment to fifty million, a total of fifty fifty two, and uh, my partner and I weren't totally getting along. I felt like I was doing almost all the work and uh, he, I was in charge of buying he's in charge of managing and um, and so we split and I decided to sell my apartments to Sam Zell um, so I negotiated a deal to sell them for three times our equity and uh, we made uh, three times our money in 18 months wow that was our 20-year pro forma in 18 months that was when I started my business I said, okay how can I make my first million dollars so I figured out I would have to do this so um, it's a great time to start a business whenever in a recession too. Most people, you know, yeah. tend to tend to look to go the entrepreneurial so, route when things are going great. But often that's not a good time to usually start. Well, I didn't have a lot of downside, right? right. My, I knew that I always wanted to work for myself, and I knew with my first kid being born, I wouldn't I wouldn't do it uh, when I had dependents. You know, I had three kids, I couldn't take the risk. 
our salaries were borrowed. I mean, we borrowed, we got paid 150 grand, and I borrowed the money from the Ziffs and, 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 and the burdens. And it was recourse. So it was like, but I was like, no problem, because if I failed, I wasn't going to be able to pay it back. We got a million dollar line from them. They lent us a million dollars to start the company. Um, and we owed it back to them. So it was a recourse loan. So, you know, I was like, okay, it's no, no problem. I don't have a million dollars. I can't ever pay it back. So why not borrow it? But, um, we got so we got going and, and I, I was negotiating with Sam and I walked Sam tried to cut the price and he was forming this company called EQR, Equity Residential Properties Trust, which is a big public company today. And I went on the board and but he cut the price and I walked away from the table. And Bobby was having a heart attack, my partner. It was like he started walking up and down Michigan Avenue, left the office. And I started I left at the office around I, I don't know, I, I walked out of his office around like nine o'clock in the morning. And I had, I really wanted to sell these apartments. Sure. I really had to split with Bobby. And uh so we, Bobby said, are you crazy? And he, I want to say it was like $180 million. He cut the price to like 160 It was a lot of money. And um, so we went back to the AMA building where we're based. And then Bobby walked out, and he went up and down shopping Michigan Avenue. And at 2 o'clock, he came into the call. No. 3 o'clock, no. 4 o'clock. The phone rang at like 4.15. They said, we'll do the deal. So <laughs> I got this. And then Neil Bloom taught me that. He said, there's a time to walk. You know, you have to be willing to walk. And uh, so I walked, and we, we got the $20 million. I've done that many times in my career since. Um, so it was interesting. I mean, I, I learned a lot from Neil. I attribute him with my, a lot of my business success, both things you should do and things you should not do. You know, Neil was a very bad seller back then, and uh, he almost got real. If he had been, if he'd crossed, crossed his loans, if he had uh, linked his deals to each other in the crisis, that would, the whole house would have come tumbling down. But he didn't, so he was able to peel off the bad leaves of the tree and just let them sail on their own and, and save the, the main business. And then I started buying other asset classes that in real estate, and one of them was hotels. Uh, we looked at some supply and demand in, in all these asset classes in real estate. There's apartments, resident houses, uh, hotels, apartments. And in apartments, we could see that the nation was growing. There was demand, and there was just too much supply, but they would cross. Mm -hmm. Supply and demand would catch up, and then rents would rise. And we were buying so cheaply versus replacement costs. The first deal we ever did was a 500-room. It was called the Windmill Springs Apartment in Colorado Springs. We put up a million dollars, and a fellow from Canada named Sam Bellsberg put up two. So we bought this 500-unit building, uh, apartment building, for $3 million dollars. Three and a half million dollars. It was fifteen thousand dollars an apartment. Wow! I mean, and it, to build that was probably at the time one hundred and twenty thousand. So, either things were going to get better, or they never build another apartment building in the history of mankind. <laughs> so, I, I bought San, I bought Bellsburg out at five million, and then you know within a year, uh, and so it went up from three to five, and then I sold it to Zell, you know, in, within eighteen months of the original acquisition for like ten. But so you have a good history of selling things to Sam Zell for a, no the same deal one deal oh, it's one deal. deal but it was you know we, we everyone did well it, it worked for everybody and um, so I went into hotels and I, I went to see Westinghouse Electric they were having a uh, they were going out of business Westinghouse I don't know if you remember them they had nuclear plants yeah. and they had this big uh, property arm and I, I went to see the the guy there was liquidating them the assets I said do you have any apartments he said no I said do you have any I forgot land he said no. Do you have any hotels? Well, we, we have this one portfolio, um, but it's under contract. Uh, the guy's a guy named Chick Hill, Davidson Hotel Group, down in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, so you can go see him. So I did. I called him up, and I, I went down to see this guy. And it was under contract to a group in Boston. And I said, we're just going to be a lot more fun to work with. <laughs> you should do the deal with us. 
And uh, he did. He dropped them and did the deal with us. And I, I bought this company, and I didn't have enough money to buy it, so I went to Blackstone's guys, and uh, they bought it with me. And uh, that's how I started in hotels. And Davidson Hotels um, was managing assets for this public company called Hotel Investors Trust that was traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And they were having a going out of business sale. They had like 20 hotels or 30 hotels, but they had to sell them to pay off the debt. They were way over leveraged. And the banks had a very um, fixed amortization schedule. You had to pay off the debt at certain times. In order to pay off the debt, they had to sell the hotels. But they had this kooky little structure called a paired share. And it was a little complicated for your guys and not that interesting. But it was unique because unlike any other public company, this company could manage anode hotels. Hotels have to be, if they're in a form of a passive trust, you can't manage them. Right. Because these REITs, these tax um, preferred vehicles, can't be in an active business. This one could. And there were only four of these. So... I then looked at that company and I said, uh, hmm, this structure should be worth something. This avoids a big conflict of interest between managers of hotels and owners of hotels. The market should care. And so we looked at the debt and we did the analysis of what the assets were worth. And we found out that that there was $200 million of debt and the assets were worth like maybe $180 million. So they were going to have a hole. They were going to go bust. So we started approaching the four guys that own that debt and said, this debt's worth 60 cents on the dollar and you should sell it. They all had it marked at, at, at full value. They were going to get full repayment. And uh, we found a Connecticut Mutual Life, I think it was, sold, went to market and sold one of the pieces of paper, and we bought it. And um, we took control of the vehicle by buying the debt. And then, and then I, that became Starwood Hotels. Wow. So we contributed a bunch of assets that we bought, and we um, did an IPO in 95, and we paid off all the debt which we owned. So we took the cash out, and then we owned this vehicle. And then my little company, Starwood, became the acquisition arm. We took an eight, that company had like an $8 million market value and $200 million of debt. And in three years, it became a $20 billion market cap. Yeah, so obviously, you know, you looked at this from a numbers perspective and it made a lot of sense. But I think so much of the magic of Starwood is the brand and what you saw in the hotel business and that opportunity, specifically with W's. Like, right. when did that creative, you know, it's like we're seeing the, the analytical side of you, and then, but then there's this, unbelievable creative yeah, side so that, that, that you take fun. it to the next level I, so I, then you're like so oh wow I when could. I came to New York uh, when I traveled to New York I used to stay in Schrager's hotels because you know the Royalton and the Paramount they were super uber cool but I couldn't get any of my services the wake up call wasn't there and the, I couldn't get a fax the laundry would come back three weeks after you gave it to them and I thought we could do a branded cool chain that wouldn't be so cool that you know the problem in in anything is the new new thing is hot and then it's not hot Mm -hmm. and there's a crowd that goes to the every new new thing opening they go to i don't know one oak and then they go to like you know live and a story whatever but i wanted to do something for the staff at w magazine i wanted to do stuff that was approachable for the people at Condé nast and traveler so i wanted it to be cool but not too cool not too intimidating and not over the edge. Um, and, and one of the things I noticed at the Royalton was that, uh, which was Philippe Stark, was that people would say that the, this modern design was transient, like it would, that it, that it, you know, it was like a fad. And the Royalton was going on like its 12th year, and it never had, it was still sure. fun and, and unique in its style. The style held. 
So I thought we could do uh, a branded boutique. And I went home because I, I started to buy, I'm going to buy all these assets in gateway cities, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. Um, and I'm going to convert them to this brand. I needed a name. Um, so the first thing we did was we bought the Doral Inn, on, which is the first WW uh, behind the Waldorf. Yeah. And it was a... <laughs> like 49. I remember somebody saying, can you have a 700-room boutique? Um, I said, I sure hope so. I hired David Rockwell, who I'd met through my uh, friend, actually. And um, I told him what I wanted to do. And, and it was his first hotel deal. Um, and uh, so we started the, to, to take on... We bought the hotel for $67 million. And it was a great price. And we spent like $130 million renovating it. So $200 million. We made $32 million our first year. Wow. And uh, But I... And then I bought the Tuscany. This is the Cascal family had died. And uh, so they, the other assets were the Doral Court in Tuscany. And there was a Doral Park Avenue. I bought the Court in Tuscany also. And now I needed a name for these hotels because I had the Doral Inn, the Doral Court, and the Doral Tuscany. And I wanted to keep Tuscany and Court because they were famous, actually, and they had good followings. So I wanted a short name. I wanted something like, you know, that I could say blank Tuscany, blank Court. Yep. Blank New York. And uh, so um, we were, I was with my wife at the kitchen table. We were just going through, she's a copywriter. I'm no longer married, but uh, I was until last year. Um, and we were going through names, and I, and I liked W Magazine, right? I thought it was cool. I liked the image, I liked the font. So we, we had a list of names, and I said, well, let's do the W. And then we come up with, we wrote this whole list of adjectives to describe the brand warm, witty, welcoming, wonderful, wow, why, why, wonder why no one's done it before. <laughs> and all of that imagery and branding we did together and uh, became the soul of the brand. And I made W report to me at Starwood Hotels. So Sheridan West, and I went on an acquisition spree. I bought Chiga Hotels, I bought ITT Sheridan for $14 billion. That's a whole other story. We were, a, we were a, a, an $8 million company. Then on our own, we became a $5 billion company. Then I went after Weston Hotels, which I'd bought privately. That made us a $7 billion company. This was all in 1998. And that, when we hit $7 billion, the stock was like 32. ITT was attacked. And I went to see Rand Ariscog, the head of what was once the, one of the largest conglomerates in the world. And I said, you need to buy us. We'll save you. He was attacked by Hilton Hotels. And I was on a golf course that summer later on. And he said... You need to come in here. I will sell you the company. I'm like, I'm 38. You're going to sell me your $14 billion <laughs> company? And this is like, this is a part-time hobby, running Star Hotels. I still had my private company, Star Capital Group. And uh, he said, I'll sell it to you. So we made an all, well, $54 in stock and $30 in cash. The stock had risen from 38 to 53, so my stock was quite valuable in, in three months. And I used the stock to buy ITT. So I had this twenty billion dollar conglomerate, and I had W reporting to me, you know, like with five people, right? Because I didn't want to get it ruined by by the mediocrity of the hotel business. I mean, Sheridan was the epitome of average, and uh, <laughs> and I was like, and I that culture, kind of like this, this was like a pervasive culture of striving to be average, was not for me, and and I didn't own the fleet. So what people don't understand about Sheridan was we only owned like. 8% of the distribution system. So I had to influence all the owners to change Sheridan. Right. And nobody wanted to do it. They didn't want to invest the money. So the, the, I did W, and W was like the little... At first, the people of Starwood hated W because of my pet project. Right. And then they became kind of proud of it later on. In the beginning, like when the New York Sheridan filled, they wouldn't send anyone to the W. And then when the W's got their own 
girth and gravitas and they got their own customer base, we, they didn't have to do it anymore. But in the beginning, they, the firm, we were, the, we were like, you know, the St. Regis didn't want to be, didn't want to talk to the W or the sure. Sheridan people. So, well, I, you know, we had to build a culture at Starwood and it was, it was, I'd say my proudest accomplishment in my career was creating that company and making it, we, over the 10 years I led the company with the best performing lodging stock in the world. Wow. And, um, and we were the biggest hotel company in the world, measured by cash flow. And uh, I, I, it, was a, it was a tough run. And we had 9-11 in the middle sure. of it. And I was going to leave because I, I really didn't want to run a big public company like that. I didn't like the scrutiny. I was a genius. Then I was an idiot. I got, I got totally um, shit-faced by the Wall Street Journal. I got uh, fouled by this reporter, Christina Brinkley. I hope she's listening. And um, <laughs> I'd bought Caesars. Part of ITT was Caesars, the, the gaming company in Las Vegas. And I, they had just completed a $500 million expansion. And I'm not, I never really liked the gaming business. And certainly for Starwood Hotels, having you know, all these hotels all over the world and this one division that was worth $3 billion over $20 billion, that's what Caesars ultimately sold for. But this one asset was probably a billion-dollar asset. And it was such a big investment to try to fix Caesars that I didn't think we should take it on. It was take all of our cash flow for that year as opposed to putting you know, $3 million into 100 assets. I'd put $300 million into one asset and pray it worked. So I decided we should probably sell it, but I didn't want to tell the management that. And I was touring it the first time, and I'm going up the escalator into the, the, the second floor ballroom, this new tower that they added. And uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, they spent so much money. So she's behind me, and, and I'm going up the escalator, and I said to the management, this guy, Peter his name anyway he uh i said this is totally over the top so the wall street journal writes a story that barry sterling said spending it at, at uh you know at a chair at, at caesar's and the itt was over the top Ooh. and the, and it's like i'm trying to woo the management and make them like me and she wrote that you know that, that they're out of control and sterling's going to change that i'm like oh boy and that's you know i had a lot of that i had a lot of run-ins with the media i had a wicked battle with uh patricia sellers from fortune magazine i i found business week called me up because I, I, I was, you know, when people buy, create companies, and we were built by acquisition, I had three of everything. I had three, three uh, HR directors, three CFOs, three, three chief counsels. I had to pick somebody, and I was 38. I'd never run anything like this. Sure. I was like a kid. And I had 14 billion of debt. I had to pay off the debt. I was, like, wondering how I'm going to, like, I hope we're making money in Egypt, and I hope they send it to me so I can pay the interest expense on all this debt. <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea. I was like, uh when we bought this company, we had, um, you know, Hilton was battling us, and, and we negotiated a $240 million breakup fee. And as I was going up the elevator in the St. Regis to the final meeting of the shareholders to decide who they're going to vote for Hilton or vote for Starwood, you know, I said, maybe I should just take the breakup fee. <laughs> I always think about that. So how do you deal with this mentally? So I, I started fixing the team, and I fired some bad actors. And, and the media, and I'm not... I wouldn't call myself a layup to work for. I mean, I, I, especially people who get paid a lot, I want them to execute and be devoted and, and do a great job. So there's no place in the, in the senior management of, of my firms of being not competent at your task. It was super interesting for me because I knew I had piles on my desk for each function, marketing, uh, legal, um, finance. And as I hired the competent executive, the pile would disappear. I could just delegate it to him finally. So I knew that I was doing a good job when these piles would disappear off of my <laughs> desk. And uh, so I was hiring these, and, and it got to be the point like uh, one guy had an ethics issue, and I won't, I won't say what it was, but I, I let him go. And Business Week was doing a story, 
And they, I said, well, call this guy. And they called the guy, and they, and they called me back, and they said, you're never going to believe it. I said, what's that? He said, he loved working for you. You weren't, he'd like, he'd come back in a second. They just offered him a fortune to go to this other hotel company. And I said, I know. That's why I told you. He said, I said, he said well, you can't write that. I said, you can't write that? He said, well, that's not the story. The story is you're impossible to work for. Nobody wants to come work for you. <laughs> so it's got to be one of the top reasons I left the public company was I just felt, you know, you get numb, but I didn't like being numb. Sure. I didn't like not feeling. I didn't like not... And then you have to manage. I learned quickly you had to manage your image. You know, it wasn't enough just to post the numbers. You had to actively manage your image. I hired this fellow from Disney, and we got into a battle. So what does managing your image look like? Well, you get a PR firm to represent yeah. you. I didn't even know you should do that, but he, the guy from Disney had one. You know, and when he, when he got let go, he created this article in Fortune magazine that was really nasty towards me, and I was really hurt, and I fired him the next day. <laughs> but it was, you know, I don't like firing people. Sure. I tend to hire people I like. And so firing them is really hard because I, I hire them and I've gotten better at it, but I'm still not good at it. It's one of my weakest strength is hiring. hiring. Yeah. So what are, what are the qualities of people? Because I don't fire people very well. You know, I should well, they say hire, hire slow and fire, fire fast, fast yeah. right? And I, I'd say my career, um, being a public executive, even now you have to have backups. You have to have a, everyone has to have someone else that you can replace them with. Oftentimes I stay with that person longer than I should. And, and you have to be willing to three strikes and you're out. You have to be willing to let people go. And sure. one of the things somebody said to me running the public company is that you're doing the whole organization disservice by keeping that person that can't yeah. do it. But I'm compassionate at the heart. I'm really a butterball. Um, and I, I don't really want to hurt anyone. But you're not doing anyone any favors. Sure. So, you know, I, it's even hard for me today. You know, and I, we, have, we run $55 billion today and we're one of the largest real estate firms in the world. And, uh, you know, we fired a guy in one of our businesses and the investor like, what did you do? I'm like, there was a huge ethics issue with the guy. And, I, you know, you can't throw him under the bus. But sometimes you, you've, you've earned the right to make those personnel decisions and investors should just let you do your thing. Sure. So. And so back to the, when did you know, so W, you know, W was pioneering in a lot of ways. When did you know? What do you think? I'm curious, like, what? When that was happening, what were you seeing culturally where you said, like, we have something, we're capturing a moment and, and doing it well? And then I'm also curious, when did you know, like, okay, it's time to maybe move on? You can identify trends. Yeah. So what were you seeing? And then when were you seeing, like, well, okay, w, guys, W maybe was like, to- you know, that was the birth of Pottery Barn and and uh, and what I'd call affordable luxury or, or like, disposable furniture, yep. <laughs> you know? And uh, the first designer I hired came from Pottery Barn. Um I tried to get I tried to get the gap. Uh, Mickey Drexler was there. I was going to do a hotel with Mickey. I talked to Ralph Lauren. I talked to all these guys. I wanted to do a branded boutique, you know, and and take it all over the country and make it fun. It fun. What I saw was that in your Asia hotels were still fun. In the United States, in the financial crisis, people like Mary had taken they, everyone taking every cost out of the room. The bath mat left. The pillow was foam. The bed was a piece of shit. And and I mean, literally, at one of my first meetings, I had. Uh, I had a conference table. It was a round donuts conference table at headquarters of Star Hotels. And we, we had 80 pillows around the table. I got pillows from Four Seasons and Marriott and every company on the planet. And I said, well, how much is that Four Seasons pillow? And they said, um, well, how much is the Marriott pillow? Six bucks. I mean, six bucks. And the hotel cost, you know, $300,000 a key to build. And they're spending $6 on something that can't get any closer to your customer. He's got his fucking face on your pillow, right? (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, the Four Seasons pillow is $20. And I'm like, oh, we're going to go hog wild. We're going to get the best pillow there is for $20 and throw it in our W's and then into Weston and the Heavenly Bed and the other stuff. 
So I just thought, like, let's make, let's fix all the problems of the hotel. W's birth was about fixing hotel problems. The TV was forced to be in front of the bed. You didn't have to be a contortionist. I got rid of the armoire because those fucking doors, you know, in mm-hmm. armoires, right? I mean, they always, you couldn't figure out how to keep them open. And then the duvet covers they had were made of this strange material. And you'd put the duvet on the floor or in the closet and the closet would pop open at night because the duvet came to life. And uh, so I got rid of all that stuff. It was heresy because we were saying, oh, if you take the armoire out, you won't get a AAA three diamond or four diamond rating. I said, well, I don't care. The TV's got good looking and the armoire was taking up half the room. So um, all that stuff, the cosmetics, they used Aveda cosmetics. Nobody had done any of that stuff before, even the cordless phone in the room because I was trying to save money. Oh, wow. I never even thought about that. All right. Nobody had done that. And, um, you know, he was like, you can hear the conversation next door. I said, let's just try it. But I, so I used that as my lab because I wasn't offending anyone. You know, all the other brands were like, you can't do that. And then when W started to succeed, everybody wanted everything that was in W, the candles, the smell, this is how it should sure. smell. And then I started rolling out innovations by brand. So, you know, like the, I, I wanted to do something for Sheridan, so I took it to the dogs. We became the dog-friendly brand. We said Sheridan's going to the dogs. It was a huge, <laughs> the number of people that own dogs in the United States is like 100 million. So we did, uh, we, and then we do a really irreverent PR for these yeah. brands. Like, um, you know, we had male models uh, sleeping with, with female models outside the New York Stock Exchange on heavenly beds. And the dogs we did in Central Park. And, you know, we do, we do stuff to get um, a lot of free advertising because we didn't have sure. a big advertising budget. So, you know, for me, I, I enjoyed creating the brands, the marketing, tapping into the veins of current of what people not. And I also I knew we had to micro market. We couldn't we weren't all things to all people. The worst thing about and Ian, Ian Schrager and I are friends, and, and, and you know, I borrowed Randy Gerber from him. We did the Midnight Oil Bars. Borrowed Randy. Borrowed Randy. Randy now is a <laughs> multimillionaire because he just sold, sold his tequila, sold company. tequila company. So, you know, I, 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 uh, I, and I brought in other brands to position our brand. So Aveda or um, sure. I bought Bliss, uh, the spa yeah. company, uh, for $25 million bucks and put that on all the Ws. So, so what makes a great brand? So I think you have to know who your customer is, right? And we didn't want, you know, I was, I'll never forget the W New York at W Times Square, which was our most successful W probably. You know, I was like an 800 pound guy came down in his underwear one day with a, like without his t-shirt on. I'm like, oh boy. Because people, Ian would compliment me that being able to produce that brand in a big company, he never thought I could pull it off. Right. And it was because I managed it like a little company in the big company. You know, I, I, I kept creative control over the brand and everything you did has to be in the brand voice right every ad every in hotels a lot of the ads sometimes used the hotels would take their own ad out right and it wasn't in the template but also has to be locally relevant and you have to be careful about um you know and 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 at the basics of of any brand have to be a good product so the restaurant had to be good the beds had to be comfortable so I think, you know, micro, knowing your brand, not being all things to all people, the inverse of the K car, where Chevy had this car that was, you know, one base and it was a genius idea, except nobody wanted a car that every car looked the same. So today, that's the most important thing you do, right, is, mm-hmm. is know your market and own it. And so one hotels, you know, when I left and, and I decided I have to go do something else. The reason I did one is like, it's kind of to me, it was like Lady Gaga. I had one hit. I did W. And, um, and I, you know, we're, we're very successful in what we do and, and hotels are just a small part of what we do, but I wanted to do something like have a second hit. Cause if you have a second hit, 
then um, and people say it's not well, luck. Well, talk to me about your passion for wellness, the environment, and how that culminated and, and, and with the idea for one. You have one of my favorite lines that you say, one's not a brand, we're a cause. And right. talk to me about that evolution, where you're, you're the, the business opportunity and the passion and say, we have to do this and we can. Well, I, I've always been an outdoors person. I grew up with trees and grass. And um, I've never been a New Yorker per se, because I don't like concrete and um, I prefer grass. So I've always loved nature and beauty in every form. So and my kids, as I have three kids, and as they grew up, they got involved in, in uh, environmental studies. Um, and I needed, I said, okay, I, I can do another brand and I'll make it up, but it has to have a reason for living. There has to be a reason for this brand to be alive. And I had met Blake Mikowski from Tom's Shoes. Sure. And, and uh, I thought he was having a ball. He lives on a houseboat, you know, and, and, um, and I wanted to be Blake. So I said, I got to do something that does well. And I thought the millennials would appreciate a brand that stood for something. And um, I'd met Graydon Carter. He was involved in the NRDC. I got involved with the NRDC. Um, and early on, I decided that we should give back to the communities in which we operate, and we should involve the communities in the properties, and we should do as much as we could to teach people they live, they could live well, and and still live good, That's still live a luxurious life. Um, also, uh, I have a very good friend, Tony Malkin, who owns the Empire State Building, his company, Empire Realty, and his wife Shelley was started this thing called the Center for Sustainability, I think it is at the NRDC, and, and, and what I really approach is kind of like philanthropy, where you see people say they want philanthropy to be self-supporting. At the NRDC, what they were teaching businesses is doing green was good business, and, sure. it, was, and it, it was profitable. So I thought that, you know, and we built uh, the, one of New York's first uh, LEEDS, which is the Environmental Standard Platinum residence, it's called the Visionaire down in Battery Park. Um, and we found out that through that process that people were willing to pay more that we were able to sell through the recession, even though um, that was the that was the uh, 2007 financial crisis, 2008 financial crisis, um, and there were people who were fiercely loyal to living in a platinum leads, you know, healthy building sure. for their kids. The air was filtered. Everything is um, environmentally sensitive. So I th- I thought, okay, we're gonna do this in hotels. And, um, and I said, okay, it's not a brand; it's a cause. We're teaching people. I said, the world doesn't need another brand; it needs a better one. So hmm. um, one hotels and one world Bono song, uh, we're all responsible for each other. And and uh, my wife hated the name, but I thought it was good enough. And I also I also like its simplicity. The problem was W. You can't trademark a letter or a number, but you can trademark a mark for an industry. So um, this time we did. We trademarked our one mark for the one hotels and, and we were sued by Fairchild magazine who owned W <laughs> W magazine when I did W hotels. And it was so funny cause I was like, you should just put your magazine in, in my hotel rooms because I'm your customer. But, uh, we settled that for me, this is a passion and, and it's, and you know, we're, we are, uh, we are finding a community of, of customers that really appreciate what we're trying to do. But it is a war out there, even with our own people and the guests, you know, who ask for uh, plastics are like the bane of the earth. And right. I've got to keep them out of the hotel. We have trying to have no paper, but people want a paper receipt. Some people ask for a newspaper. I don't really want to give them a newspaper. So, um, you know, we do. And, 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 you know, when I did the first W, the first one, sorry, which is the one South Beach. You know, our, my partner is a multi, multi-billionaire, very successful fellow named Richard LaFrac, and he's like, what kind of 
brand is this? Who are we serving to? And why we have to have water and Cokes and all this stuff? I said, no, we don't. And we were fighting, you know, continual battles. I was actually laughing because I was walking out of the one Brooklyn Bridge this morning, and there's a guest talking to the one of the people working at the hotel that there are our hangers are recycled cardboard, yeah. and they actually don't have a. Uh, a place for pants you know they're like oh, just a thing and the woman's complaining that and i'm like well we should cut out the middle of the paper hanger so she can have a place for her it's not a great hanger but it's well it's well designed well, you know what, it's what, a, what is the vision for one and i'm curious talk about some of the features you have because i think it's kind of remarkable on how you're trying to change behavior with people well i think i think um we're trying to build these hotels with uh, sustainable uh, products and woods and environmentally everything's sourced try to source as much as we can locally more than half of the products in brooklyn our brooklyn one are uh, sourced locally the furniture is made by local artisans where yeah. the, the cafe is called neighbors because we buy from the neighbors and resell it in our in our cafe um we have farm to table restaurants uh featuring what i think are be super healthy uh food which i think is for me what i want to eat today I think it's funny. I said W is for me in my 30s. You know, it was right. like cool back then. And then the whole world got into um, boutiques and and then became Pottery Barn. And, and you know, it was like ugh, the design to me. We moved on. Dated. And dated. Yeah. And, and so here, I think the world's gotten a little more bohemian. It's a little more less, more found, a little less manufactured, a little more individual, authentic. And uh, when you're doing things and celebrating nature, which we try to do with the one brand and remind people of nature and its importance, and I think we can do more. I mean, we have a great uh, sustainability officer we just hired from uh, Google, and uh, you're going to hear more from her and about her because we're going to take this really seriously. And we can do better. But it is one of the interesting things because some of our hotels were recycled. They're old buildings, right? And my team was like, oh, we can't do this. I said, well, yes, we can because everybody can do a little better. And it's a journey. It's not going to be open perfectly. So our one South Beach, like we, the, the, um, the AC units are like buried deep into the property and they're not what I'd want. Mm -hmm. But, but the hotels used uh, beetle kill. We used all this wood that was killed by beetles out in Colorado all over the hotel you see this I saw it on TV actually it was um there was a special on it the beetle turns the wood like blue gray right and they were making furniture out of it so we put it everywhere in the hotel we we have 10 million board feet of beetle wood kill whatever but it's all sustainable it's all re- renewed that were just rotting in for on the ground in in these forests because nobody wanted the wood from these trees so I think it's super cool. I also think it imbues the staff with a mission. People tell the mission. And, um, you know, we're making a difference, one guest at a time. And, and more than half of the guests that come to the hotel said they've changed something in the way they live at home. Right. I was just saying, do you think people come to the hotel and they walk away saying, like, shit, I can do this or I can do that or I had no idea. I think like- we need to bang their heads a little bit more than we're doing. I, I think we need to tell them about, and it's one of my issues right now, is messaging. I think we're a little too subtle about it. And, and I don't want to, like, be offensive, but I want people to know the, pl- the problems in plastics and, and what they're doing to the oceans. And, and uh, I want people to know, like, because people, you, they'll understand. It's one of the funniest things. We don't have that card in the room that says, 
you know, if you don't want to, your sheets changed, right? Because right. some of my operating teams are like, oh, it's so down market. I said, but it's right on our yeah. brand, guys. I think the Post Ranch Inn even does that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was at uh, the Rosewood in, in Menlo Park yesterday, um, and they do it, and it's $800 a night, yeah. right? So they're like, oh, and, and even in, um, uh, in Claridge's in London, there's a little marble that says, you know, if you don't want your towels washed, please hang them up on the rack. So what drives you nuts? That drives me nuts that, that my it? team won't let me do that. <laughs> and, and, and I think, you know, every, what drives me nuts is when we veer off our brand promise. Uh, I also think the hotel business is, I, I think what we're offering is such a good product. I don't think we're pricing it properly. Right. And I, I, I need to sadly raise the prices for what we're doing. And this is a luxury brand. It's actually done far better than I thought. I mean, we're three hotels strong, and all of our hotels are beating all their competitors in their markets. Sure. And we don't have uh, 2,000 hotels and a national marketing force and sales well, team. This is all word of mouth. Well, what's the vision? How many hotels do you want? Like, what's the vision? And I think well, people at the end of the day, I mean, we own these three hotels, and, and uh, we're just... Uh, I was just in Los Angeles where we're doing the, the one West Hollywood, which we just bought a hotel that hadn't opened and was finished. And we're going to convert. We're going to open it as the Jeremy, and then we're going to convert it over the next year to a one. And that's going to open as one around what date? About a year from now. Okay. Um, it's opening as the Jeremy, and then we'll take it piece by piece because it's uh, ready to be open. So all the furniture's in it. August 18. Yeah, something like that. Okay. I'm sure it'll be more like November, but sure. let's aim for August, and we'll let anyone off the hook. But I met with the landscape people yesterday in Los Angeles, and I met with interior designers, and we're changing the rooms, and we're, we're greening it up, and um, and it'll fit the brand, I think, fairly well. We're doing, uh, I think we're doing a hotel in Sunnyvale, California, right around Google's headquarters. We met okay. with Google yesterday, and we own the building, so it'll happen. Um, and then we're doing one in Sanya, China. We're doing a, a resort in Cabo on the water. Wow. Um, so I think we'll have uh, anything else in domestic U.S. Yeah, Salt Lake City. We're working on. We're we're, we're competing for a project in downtown San Francisco. Oh wow! Um, we have. Uh, I'm looking for resorts. Actually, I would like to do a one resort. Uh, I know what it'll look like. I actually know what the next ten hotels will look like. So. Um, so this is all in your head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you dream of hotels at night? Sadly. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to dream of something else, but no, I, I actually love design. I love working with really super talented interior designers. And I think you might know I'm one of the two businessmen in the interior design hall of fame, which I think is That's my amazing. greatest accomplishment. So, um, I love artists. I love, uh, one of the things I'm gonna do with my foundation is create an artist colony and let these guys go do their thing. So and I want to talk about that, but one thing, you know, you, you definitely have a very strong opinion on, on the environment and I want to talk more about the NRDC and, and why is this so important? You know, what's going on with the environment and Trump and why is this like so critical that everyone needs to wake up and. So I approach the environment a little like God, you know, and I I don't um, it's like you can't prove it correct that it exists or doesn't exist. So you might as well believe because the thesis of the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule is a good way to behave. It's it's a universal moral code. So when I look at like the environment, um, there's a big debate. and I thought it was over frankly, that the, we were screwing up the environment. And you see the, you know, I grew up in Connecticut. We used to have really cold winters and we just have snow and now we don't have anything. So I think like if you're right and we're screwing up the environment, you must do something about it. And if you're wrong, what harm did you do, right? What harm did it do to be a little cleaner, not be more careful with your trash? So it's, it's absolutely obvious to me that we should all be much more sensitive to the environment and pollution and recyclables and reusing things we use. It's just smart. 
And um, we're at the tipping point for society, it seems like. I mean, the weather's getting more violent. And anybody who thinks it's not, we owned Mammoth Mountain, the ski resort. We had four years of horrific drought. Jeez. You know, and it was 100-year droughts. You know, we couldn't, it was like, there was no snow. There's no snow, there's no melt, there's no water. And four of them. Four of them in a row. Yeah. So, and then it snowed like forever, you know, like every day. It snowed right. every day, like 7 billion feet of snow. And it's not normal. And we have 100-year records. So I think it's really important. And I think the kids care, the millennials care. And, you know, it's a little like W. I mean, the older generations will get, up, will get there, but the kids really care. So the Trump's administration, uh, administration that, that was new. Obviously, I didn't know when we started One Hotels that Trump would be president. And his position is ridiculous, and uh, you, you know, I, and, I, and it's it's offensive in every way, and it's not necessary. And I don't actually believe he believes in it. And he's playing to the, the conservatives, who you know, that's so funny because all these guys support the, the the National Rifle Association, right? And they all hunt, right? Every one of them has like the National Duck Society or this or that, right? Every one of them. <laughs> And yet they don't want to keep the, the. He's literally letting companies dump shit into rivers again. So where is the sense in that? Where is the logic of, of National Wildlife Foundation? And you're not an environmentalist. You have to be. So I don't understand it. I just don't get it. And I, I think you've got to have a long-term plan. The, the only entity in the world that, that can afford to have a real long-term plan is a government. Right. I mean, like uh, companies get if they have a long term plan, they, they sacrifice short term earnings. The CEO gets taken out. Sure. Some hedge funds come in and blow up the company. But the government doesn't have that. They have a they have a long term view. They should drive towards a long term view. I mean, I remember as a kid, you turn your windshield wipers on in New York and there was all this soot and dirt on your windshield. And it's sure, not there anymore. That, yeah. Right. We used to manufacture stuff. Now we don't. The benefit is the rivers are clean. So right? do, do you think that Trump is so bad that he's almost for the environment that he's woken people up to pay attention well, to this you know, issue you, and he's forced you're it. You're asking a question you know the answer to. So. I think the answer is yes. yes. I, think, I think he, I think the NRDC know, has never been stronger. Has yeah. never, never had more support. And all these, the EDF, the Environmental Defense Fund, the Rainforest Alliance, the Conservation International, uh, you know, they're all uh, doing, working hard. And having said that, they're getting support, but their battles are monumental. I mean, they're, they have to have support because they're fighting on so many fronts to literally save the planet. And you have the, the world community is behind this, and Trump has taken this position, seems just to have an argument. Right. I don't think he really believes what he says. I've known Trump. You know, I, I just, you know, I think he's, he likes fights. He likes being difficult. So how do you deal with that? What, what can we as citizens do? You know, I, I don't get it, because the one thing, you know, about Donald is he loves to be loved. Everyone loves to be loved, so he's not unique that way. And uh, if he wants to win this election, this is an easy point to give, right? This is an easy point to walk away from and say, I was wrong. You have 200 nations that want him to do that, the governments of 200 nations. You have most of the governors saying, we're, we're ignoring you. We're going to continue our policies, California. So he should just give in right. and, and change his policy. It just happens to be wrong. That's what grown-ups do. Remember humility part? That was the first line. You were wrong. He's wrong. And... You know, they say Ivanka's tried to talk him out of it, but she's not been successful. And who knows if that's true? I mean, in this world with what they call fake news, there's no such thing. I mean, there is such a thing now, I suppose. But uh, maybe she's not trying. Maybe she's just saying she's trying. So I I think, um, 
it's abhorrent and it's not small to me. It's a big issue. It's not like, okay, I'm going to get a tax cut so he can, he can screw up the, 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 the environment. This is a, this is a, you know, a really critical thing. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think we still do what we do and the people will care and the issues in a way he's raising the bar and show and highlighting the, 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 all the progress we made. You know, even carbon, even even drill baby drill. I mean, this is not the long-term solution. Right. This is a short-term pop to the economy and not a long-term answer to what we need to do. We need to be energy independent and we need to focus on... I was in Denmark two weeks ago. 70% of the power comes from wind in wow. Denmark. I mean, there's no reason the U.S. should lay off any... That's a long-term investment in renewables. So we aren't dependent on on the Middle East for oil and we're not dependent on our local... Because uh, even the best estimates of oil reserves, it's still going to run out. So why not make this move? I saw England ban the combustion engine, sure. engine yesterday to 2040. There'll be no more cars. I mean, th- there are countries in, you know, that are doing it earlier, I think 2024 yeah. in Europe. Have you read Paul Hawkins' book, Drawdown? No. You'll like it. 100 Solutions to Climate Change. He assigns a number from 1 to 100, puts a cost against it, too, and what we can do in the next... It, well, you know, we have we actually have Starwood Capital, my private firm. We have we have a pretty big energy business where we invest in, in renewables. So we've done wind farms, we've done uh, solar plants, but the largest solar plant in Canada, the second largest in North America. Um, so we've been doing this also in our business and for business for institutions. We we did a lot of projects with the grid here. We connected uh, um, Long Island needed more power. So they put out an RFP request for proposals, and they got six coal-fired plants or gas-fired plants, one nuclear plant. And we took excess power from southern New Jersey, laid a 76-mile cable under the ocean and plugged it into Hempstead, Long Island, and took the excess power that already existed. And it was supposed to just be the overflow of um, power to when they had uh, energy needs. And today it's 22% of all the power on Long Island is generated from southern New wow. Jersey. And so, we did the same thing in New York. We connected Manhattan has eight above-grade power plants, the IPPs, independent power producers. And uh, so uh, Mayor Bloomberg decided he wanted to um, bring renewable energy to New York City. So uh, he decided we should plug into the grid. And New Jersey's grid goes all the way out to Ohio. It's 13 states. And so uh, we laid a cable underneath the Hudson River and connected New Jersey to New York. And for the first time ever, New York is wow. now part of the electrical grid. And if something were to happen to one of those eight power plants that are sitting ducks above the grid like a terrorist attack, this cable can supply the power so New York doesn't go dark. And uh, it's, it's, um, these are interesting projects because you're just using existing resources sure. better. They have, they have, they're, they're as environmentally sensitive. And Bloomberg could have, and, and de Blasio hasn't, but he could have said, I only want power produced from wind farms or from green energy sources. So we would basically buy power to match NYPA. New York Power Authority is uh, by 75% of the So the you, you know from people us. like Elon Musk and, and, and you travel the world. What are some of the most exciting business developments in sustainability where you say, like, that's the future. This is where we need to be. Well, I, have this three, is super I, I have three Teslas. So, I mean, I, so you, know, you know Elon very well. <laughs> no, I, I've only met him a couple of times, but uh, that's our car at One Hotels. We have Teslas. And... Um, I love the car, so you know I, I think you're not sacrificing anything driving this electric car. Uh, so that's all. The, some of the big developments will be batteries. It's the battery storage dilemma has been the big issue with sure. renewables. Is you can produce the power, but where do you store it? 
until you need it. And that's stuff that's his batteries. That's the biggest thing going on um, in renewables. And um, I, I think uh, I think all of the things that he's trying to do with a boring company, which is drilling tunnels so cars can move much more rapidly. Um, Uber is good for the environment because you're going to have less cars, you know, sure. and they're using the cars that exist much more. The number, I don't remember the number, but you use your car like 10% of its life, you know, wow. it just sits idle all the time. So you're going to have fewer cars uh, on the road because you're using the fleet so much more efficiently. I mean, I use Uber all and Lyft because I'm an investor in Lyft. So I use Lyft all the time. Lyft is a little bit more favorable these days. Yeah, yeah. They, they don't have the CEO dilemma. <laughs> so uh, they're a little kinder company. Yes. And uh, they've never been as vicious. I mean, Uber has a $60 billion valuation. Because the other problem with Uber, which is not a small issue, and cities have to watch this, is they are so cheap that they're driving out the yellow cabs, right? Right. And when the yellow cab is gone, will they jack up their rates and surge pricing will be the norm? Uh, there's a good shot of that because mm-hmm. they, you know, and that that's almost like building a monopoly in front of the U.S. government and they're not noticing, right? I mean, that you, you're not allowed to do that in industrial products. You're not allowed to price predatory pricing is illegal in the United States, right? And in this case, it seems like Uber is close to predatory pricing. I take a Uber from my home in Miami to our office in Miami where I have a house, and it's like five dollars, and the taxi oh, wow. is like. 10 and I feel bad about paying five dollars sure. so I give the guy a big tip but that's not you're not supposed to be able to do that so, so what is the future of, of more you know sustainable business wellness like where do you where so do you think, see the world of, in so, five years you know when I did W hotels I thought the hotel should be a meeting place again it shouldn't be a place to show up and get out of instantly and I think Marriott had driven the market that direction I think they've woken up but they were like okay Marriott stood for they're the winning brand and all they did was safe it was clean and safe and as boring as you could be you couldn't find remember anything about your Marriott hotel room so I decided we're going to bring life and energy back to the hotel. We're going to build a great restaurant, and our living room was a meeting space in the W's. And bring community back. The world's looking for community. The collapse of the family structure, organized religion. You see the electric community of Facebook, the 2 billion users. You see the, these communities forming. But people still crave like human interactions and, and, and an opportunity to, to meet and greet. And they need these uh, uh, places that are that are, um, help them meet and, and do things. So I think, I think the United States is also behind the rest of the world in green. Sure. And I think it's going to matter here as much as it does in Europe. I mean, Europe, all the buildings in Denmark and Holland, Copenhagen, and Sweden, or just was, I mean, they're all green buildings. It's not even thought about. You're not going to get financing to build a crappy building. And we will do that. California, all the government buildings have to be LEED certified now. And everything you build has to be done green. And it's going to become, you know, buildings are a huge source of pollution. So it's going to become a, uh, a, an institutional requirement, I think. And the money will favor these modern, energy-efficient buildings. And that will drive more of those and less of the old kind. And people will pay attention. And um, so I think the capital will go that way. Values will be, the buildings that are green will be more valuable. Tenants will care because it says something about, you know, one of the things about one is we've noticed there are companies that want to do their meetings with us because they want to say they care about the environment. Sure. And so, you know, that's been a much bigger community than I would have thought. 
And not everybody who comes to one has any idea it's a green sure. brand, you know. So it's a bit of a, and there are people who are, oh, you know, but so we don't, they don't they go to their, go to your, your Hampton Inn, you're fine. I mean, but, but we don't, we won't be for everyone, right? right. And we're not, this is not, this is, this is a luxurious brand. This is not a, uh, a budget endeavor. It's, and it's not a crunchy eco brand. It's, right. It's like I said, I didn't want people to have to sleep on burlap and eat carrots. <laughs> right. It wasn't sustainable that way. Right. You know, but I see us doing in the resorts and I think we can do some really cool things in resorts and any, any areas you're looking at for resorts. I'm excited personally. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I think it's everything, though. It's, you know, you got to, I think you got to do your, uh, I don't meditate, but I should. Well, and I think that's part of our brand. I think yoga is part of our brand. I yeah, think all of these, yeah, what does you know, wellness look like fitness. to you on like a daily basis? Like what keeps you sane? You know, you're fit, you're, you got it together. <laughs> like what, what, what keeps, what, what does wellness look like? What do you do to keep healthy? I, 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 I watch what I eat and I work out pretty much every day. So what do you eat? Like, how do you describe your diet or workout? Well, it's, I, my my i have eggs usually sure. eggs so for breakfast i mean i i don't deviate too much from that mm-hmm. um i try to eat salads and then you know pretty much what you'd expect somebody's trying to stay healthy who's not avoid four, the sugar 14 years old yeah avoid sugar i love pretzels they're my they're, they're my problem <laughs> that's, your that's my kryptonite i have to stay away from the salted pretzels now but you know as you get older you have to really fight your diet and uh to slow down your metabolism so you know, I do Barry's boot camp. I do Equinox. I, I have my own trainers and my, and my own gyms that I go to. So I try to have a workout buddy and, and stay fit. You know, and I think when you let that go, it's really hard to get it back. Sure. And I think I just feel better. It's most of my time out. It's my hour off during the day when I really just do that for myself. And, and people run. I'm, my knees aren't so great. I, you know, I played a lot of tennis and growing up, I play golf, which is a beautiful thing to do. Um, and it's fun, but it takes a lot of time out of the day. So, too much time. Yeah, it is you too much time. I don't see you having time for four and a half hours of 18 holes. Well, you, you feel, you talk about guilty. You feel really guilty. <laughs> After nine holes, you're still like, do I really have to play the next yeah. nine holes? Um, but it's pretty. I mean, there's some beautiful golf courses and, in the world. And talk to people a bit more. I don't think people know about what you're doing with the NRDC. Fill people in. Well, we created this... Um, scholarship program for uh, young entrepreneurs and uh, you know it's pretty exciting and we have applicants coming in and we're going to blow them up and help them expand and and, uh, and and reach more scale of of their ideas so it's um i think we we put in close to a million dollars into That's this one yeah and uh it's a personal investment my you know it's easy for me it's i have a foundation now and and my kids are involved and I actually let them all, all they're all, they're 26, 24, and 22. And I asked them last year, I said, okay, you can give away money, but pick four, four charities that you want to give money to. And on their own, you know, they all, um, one of my children wanted to help the Syrian refugees. Um, and then we, we did a ocean. My, my oldest son is really involved with Oceanic, which is uh, sure. saving the oceans. And he just, uh, he's, he's down in, with Richard Branson and down at some conference right now, which is kind of cool. He spoke at the UN. And then um, my daughter said, let's do the NRDC. You know, so um, she, she's, a, she's a devout. And the NRDC, it's interesting. I was talking to the leadership there, and I said, you know, they, they typically fight um, Trump and, and, and in court. 
Yeah, well, they, what's I, their line? We've been suing polluters since 1970 yeah, or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And 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 uh, I, I I think we have to help Trump figure out how to make him a hero, you know, and and, <laughs> and uh, how to how to make it him realize that this is a layup for him to come the to switch directions and join the community, the global community, and get the youth back on his side because I think he he won and by such a narrow margin despite the fact that half his voters believe he won the popular vote he only won by like 40,000 votes if you look at the four states that swung the election I hope those kids come out and vote for the environment this time I think they will well they better right I mean this is not if they care they can't sit on their butts they have to come out and vote and the apathy of the youngsters is a joke because it's really for them. I mean, I won't. My my world will be around probably pretty much. It's their children's children that will inherit a worse sure. world, and it's not funny. And it's not something. It's something you can do something about. You, their minimum to do is is vote, right. and vote 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 for the world. And you know, our our one hotels were like we're 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 small. You asked me earlier. I I think we'll have we're in a trajectory to grow faster than W. Wow. And we have an amazing hotel we just won in Paris. Oh, my God. It's amazing. We're in Paris. The 7th Arrondissement. It's designed by Ken, Kengo Gumi. Kengo Gumi. It, look it up. It's spectacular. And if, we've, if that hotel gets built, which I assume it will, um, it'll be probably one of the most famous hotels in Europe. Wow. And so you need 100 hotels, 1,000 hotels? I don't care. As long as they, <laughs> you know, we're fiduciaries. These have to make money. The customer has to care and they have to be sure. successful. We have to control our costs. But um, yeah, I think, you know, again, if we can do this. And I, this is a brand, because for me, I'm, I've done really well in my life. And if everybody copies what we're doing, I'm delighted. I'm right. just happy with it. You know, it's all good for me. This isn't really about us. It's about making the teaching well, people they can. It's a cause. Right. I mean, it isn't. We'll we'll do our deals and we'll try to be at the forefront of design and we'll try to be innovative and 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 hopefully we'll build a really good community that so, yeah. wellness community. So, what does success look look like to you now at this stage? And that my investors make money doing yeah. this because well, then they'll yeah. support it, the growth. Right. right. It's like if, if I keep losing money, or if I lose money on these, then we're done. We're we finished. Right. Them. So, so if it becomes an advantaged way to deploy capital at attractive rates of return, then we can do 100 of them, yep. right? So I have to get the cost down, and I don't have to get the rates up. The rates are fine, right. although I'd like to raise them, <laughs> in Brooklyn at least. Um, and I think the Brooklyn Hotel is one of the great hotels in the United States. It's I mean, amazing. When the, People need to go check it out. Check okay. it out. And I'm, I can't wait till the restaurant and the spa open, and yeah. then I will go on a staycation. <laughs> I will cross the river on that boat and drop in and stay for the weekend our weekend rates are the highest of the week you know the uh, people are getting it and we haven't finished the hotel it's 90 yeah. well we finally got the pool open on the roof that That's was beautiful a, it's amazing you guys, it's got one of the best views in new york city too it's the most amazing view if you haven't seen it, you have to come see it guys so i have two, two last questions so one if you could go back in time in your 20s and give yourself advice you know whether it's relationships love business wellness like what, what, what advice <laughs> would you give yourself back then <laughs> I think probably it goes back to the first question you asked me, which was my father. You know, I'm uh, probably insecure. Like my dad was never comfortable in the United States. He always felt like a foreigner. And I think, you know, so you try to overachieve and you always have your own, you're trying to prove to yourself that that it's not luck. And and, um, so I think celebrating more um, your achievements as opposed to 
just brushing them aside quickly and say, because I think in business and in life, but in business in particular, you know, the, one of my favorite books is the Who Moved the Cheese or something like that. Yeah, yeah, Spencer Johnson. Spencer's yeah, a little yeah. book is like takes 10 minutes to read. And, you know, change, you have to embrace change um, because it's going to change and you just go with it, right? And I think, so my fear is that my, like my father's business went bankrupt when he wasn't paying attention. It's like I, I, I say, you know, he used to say, let the, uh, worry about the downside, the upside will take care of itself. Mm. I think that's a tough philosophy in life. I think, I think uh, life, you have to take time outs to celebrate those achievements and not say, okay, we're done, let's move on to the next one. I think it wears your team out. And, and for me, probably I should have spent more time um, on the successes and, and, and recognizing the good stuff. But it's been this rat race, you know, that's like I've got to stay on top of the hill. I've got to be the first. I got, can't be obsolete. I don't want to be Kodak. Hmm. I don't want to be Walmart, right? I want to be, I want to be Amazon. I want to be Facebook. I want to be the leader in what we're doing and, and be the top. And, and I don't want to be obsolete. And I don't want to fail. Failure would hurt too much. And, um, and I think the life balance, you know, being super successful. Somebody said to me early in my life that everyone has 24 hours in a day and how you choose to use them is up to you. Mm. The world's fair because I used to grow up, oh, it's not fair. It's like, it's fair. You just, you know, this guy's doing that and that guy's doing that. So, you know, I think, I think what I agree with um, in the Republican side, and I don't think the Democrats necessarily disagree, is accountability and, and you're responsible for your life. So that leads me into like my... My, my favorite sayings that I tell students, you know, I think hope is not a business strategy, right? <laughs> um, You've got to take control. And, and I did this EST thing when I was in college, and um, I forgot what it was called. But they said there's no such thing as hope. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's no hope. You know, you can't hope for anything. You just got to make it happen. You got to do it. Just do it. You can't try to pick up the pen. Just pick up the pen. So for me, I think, um, and, and luck is when our... Uh, uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Sure. You create your own luck. I was accused or said I got lucky with the paired share building Starwood Hotels. That was not luck. I mean, we worked our asses off. While everyone was saying, we just built this single-family rental company, and a lot of people thought this wasn't a business. And I said, well, it could be a business. This business now is $7 billion New York Stock Exchange listed company. So, And it's a real company. And we did it, and everyone said no. You know, So don't listen to everybody. Also, right. like those are the best things. And Howard Head uh, came to speak at Harvard Business School and he had invented the Prince tennis racket, which, if you remember, was the wider head tennis racket, which was the rage. And he said the greatest inventions in your life are the simplest things are the things you do every day, making them easier. So, you know, when, like people think the heavenly bed was genius, but you sleep on a bed every day. I just made the bed super comfortable, made it the feature of the room. So. That was pretty obvious, and right. it became the DNA of, of Starwood was the comfortable beds. And so I think, I think, I think about stuff like that. I think uh, I, I tell the story of my fortune cookie I got in high school. I put in my wallet, and, and it used to say, Perseverance is genius in disguise. <laughs> and uh, that is my motto. You know? And I've, I, I was just talking to some guys in Silicon Valley. I was with Reed Hoffman last two days and, and from LinkedIn, and I was saying, you've know, you, you got to know when to pivot. And a lot of entrepreneurs, you back in the Silicon Valley, and they're, what they ultimately do with their companies is not what they set out to do. They pivot. They realize that they've got to go. And sometimes it's just hard, but it's worth pursuing that line. You, the genius in business and the super successful people is knowing when keep going or take a U-turn sure. or turn left or right because it's not going to work. It's not a good use of your time. And I think everyone faces those things in their lives, you know, where there's those decisions they have to make and is it still worth investing in or should you just move on and where is it 
stubbornness and stupidity and where is it genius to gut it out hard is not an excuse not to do something you know so hard hard is actually if you and i think in my career if you think about what we've done hard just means that other people won't do it right so you can do it so it's you know those are the those are things that create real value and lasting enterprise um one hotels was started before the financial crisis i bought a site in seattle downtown i had an interest in a building on bryant park we had a uh, three acre site in scottsdale on the canal and they were all designed as one hotels and um all of them didn't pan out the f- mm. when i did the construction costs and what i thought they would yield to our you know the cash flows would be they didn't work so i in fact the andas in maui was supposed to be a one you oh, know no way yeah it was, it was designed by rockwell with us to do be a one and it didn't work for my investors. I never started construction. I never gave up the dream, right? I, I parsed through the financial crisis, and then I resurrected it by, you know, buying the, when the, when the um, Gansevoort South sure, Beach came to the market, we bought it, the notes from, credits, uh, from first Credit Suisse and, and foreclosed on the equity and then built the building. So, I mean, I could have given up. Like 99% of people would have said, okay, it didn't work. Let's move on. But I really wanted to do this. It really mattered to me. So, um, you know, five years later, seven years later, the first one got born. But it was an idea I had a long time ago. And uh, as soon as I I left uh, Starwood Hotels in 2005. So, you know, it's been a while. Twelve years. Yeah, Yeah. it's crazy. I still get requests and complaints from guests (laughs) and people asking me for hotel rooms. Even really nice people that you think would know that I'm not there anymore because I haven't been. Now Starwood Hotels has been bought by Marriott. And uh, that was like watching your child get wet, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) But it was like I actually was happy. I preferred Marriott to Anbang, the Chinese conglomerate that had made the move on them. And it was a merger I actually proposed when I left Starwood Hotels. In 2005, I went to see Bill Merritt and Arnie Sorensen, who I knew, and uh, said, we should merge. And they thought I was kidding. I said, no, 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 we're going to be a closeout. We're going to be the game changer in the industry. And so so 12 years later, they paid a lot more for it. So when (laughs) when you wake up in the morning, what has you excited? And then when you go to bed at night, what keeps you up? People issues keep me up. And finding time for all the things I like to do, the work-life balance, you know, um, work, work is, can be overwhelming and staying and being on top of your game and executing execution without vision is a uh, hallucination, which is uh, <laughs> Winston Churchill. I've got a lot of the vision part and the execution part is what separates the, the, the mice and the men. And I think, uh, just, I know execution, execution, execution. I see the problems. I'm like delivering these hotels, like a concerto, right? I know all the bad notes. I see all the problems <laughs> in our design. And the mistakes we make, and the expense they they you know, and the and the suboptimal returns we're generating because we spend too much money on stuff the guest doesn't care about. So, but it's people issues, and and finding great athletes who care. This millennial generation is a different generation. It is different than my generation. Yes. I, I think it is, it is uh, a challenge to get these. I gave a prize in my office. I think it was twenty five thousand dollars. I offered to any of the young kids who came up with an idea that we could execute, you know, and do it for an investment. And I had no takers. <laughs> I'm like, I would have killed for $25,000 sure. at 23. Killed. I would have stayed up every night for as long as it took for me to get that 25000 sure. bucks. They don't care. I mean, is it, is it, maybe some do, but the ones I employ don't. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm a little, I'm a little, you know, and I have to respect that. And I realize it's not my firm. It's the millennial generation. And my, I have three of them. I have three kids that age. 
So they're very, very different, and I'm sure the youngest one would stay up at night, and the oldest probably wouldn't. So last question, where do, where do you stay when you can't stay at one of your hotels? What are some of your favorite places to go? So that's funny. I, I, I always say sleep with your enemy, right? <laughs> <laughs> when, I, uh, when I travel, I try to, I, I look at the hotels that I, you know, I look, I look at the hotels and I, I try to find something that would be interesting that I might learn something from. So, uh, you know, I stay everywhere. I mean, I, there's no particular place. Like, I stayed at the Mercer the other night in the city, and I, I stayed at our hotels. I stay at the Soho House. You know, I'm a fan of the Soho House. Uh, I, 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 stay, um, I stay in the new, new Park Hyatt. Um, I move around. I sleep around. <laughs> Any favorite places in the world recently? You said, oh, that's interesting. What's going on there? Or we should have a presence there? Or? I was in Ibiza, Ibiza, I guess you say. Yes. And uh, we'd like to have a hotel there. We actually own a bunch of hotels there, but they're a different brand. They're Solmalia. Huge wellness movement happening there right yeah, now. Yeah. I think, you know, all these Spanish resorts are doing well because the Middle Eastern resorts are people are afraid to go to. And um, you know, Italy, I, I love Italy. Uh, I'd love to have some properties in, in great places. I was in Puglia recently. Uh, but I, could go, I was also up at Lake Como. Those are, there's so many fantastic sure. places to go. I don't, I, uh, I like French Polynesia. You know, we built a, a St. Regis there, and I think there's a W in, in the Maldives. Yeah. I've never been to the Maldives, so that's one of the few places I really have. I've been everywhere, and I haven't been there. You have a great um, place in the Caribbean, too. The, the Four Seasons. Well, you could. One. Oh, we, we should, yeah. Labor's tough, and Zika's been tough, so... Yeah. Uh, we should be, we're going to look for something in the Caribbean and, and along uh, Tulum be super for us. And um, um, I was, we did a St. Regis in Punta Mita on the West Coast. There's a better place for us up Which, in yeah, Correas, you know, up where Correas is in Tamarindo yeah. on the West Coast. Correas is kind of our ethos, very artistic and kind of fun. Would you go back to Hawaii? Yeah, I suppose. Hawaii's great. It'd just be so fun to do a one, you know, an eco resort. We're looking at something in Napa also right now. That'd be great. Yeah, really great. And the, the resort is built into the vineyards. It's really cool. That'd be amazing. Well, yeah. personally, I look forward to that. And okay. thank you so much for being here, My everyone. Pleasure. You got to check out the One Hotels if you haven't been. The one in the one here in Brooklyn is one of the best hotels. It's one of your your, your favorite hotels you've ever produced. Well, the, you know, the One Hotel Central Park was voted the best new urban hotel in the world by Wallpaper in December, wow. which is cool because if they like. Central Park, they should love Brooklyn. Brooklyn's amazing. <laughs> amazing. And Florida's pretty good too. It is. Thank you Thank so you. much for being Thanks here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. Thanks.